Well, his dream was to prove to the world that if the right methods were followed, then any child could learn anything. Hello, and welcome to the Arts of Language podcast with Andrew Poudois, founder of the Institute for Excellence in Writing, or as many like to say, IEW. My name is Julie Walker, and I'm honored to serve Andrew and IEW as the Director of Marketing. Our goal is to equip teachers and teaching parents with methods and materials which will aid them in training their students to become confident and competent communicators and thinkers. So, Andrew, last week we spent quite a bit of time talking about your relationship with Dr. Suzuki, how you were trained by him in the Suzuki method, which he didn't call it that. He didn't say, oh, this is my method. Right. Yeah, no, they still don't in Japan call it that. That's mm -hmm. just an Americanized, internationalized term, sure. Suzuki Mesodo. Oh, I see. No, in <laughs> Japan, it's, it's Saino Kyoiku, talent education. We were talking about the four pillars of Suzuki education, talent mm -hmm. education. The earliest period, meaning start at a young age because mm -hmm. it's easier to learn. The right environment, saturate the environment with the things that you want the child to learn. The right teacher, which is get the mom involved because she's got the two things that no one else has as much of, and that's love and time. And then the right methodology for acquisition and mastery of skills development. So we ended then saying that Dr. Suzuki's goal, his dream, wasn't just to be a music teacher, but to be an everything teacher. Well, his dream was to prove to the world that if the right methods were followed, then any child could learn anything. Mm -hmm. One thing I didn't mention that is of interest, and he writes about this uh, in his first book, Nurtured by Love. One of his earliest child students of the violin was blind. Mm. And the father said, can you teach a blind boy to play the violin? And Suzuki said, I don't know, but I'll try. Mm -hmm. And to, you know, to this day, I guess, I don't know, that, that was kind of a legendary breakthrough for him because that's when he realized, well, a blind child isn't going to read notes. Right. They're going to need to hear it. They're going to have to approach the thing in an entirely different way than a lot of people would have gone about when you have people who can see. Mm -hmm. I mean, you can't even look at your violin. You have to feel everything. Mm -hmm. And in fact, there were times when he would, he would blindfold students so that they would get some of that experience of feeling it in a different way. It made me think about Maria Montessori mm -hmm. because she started her work with what she affectionately called her little idiots. I mean, she got the outcasts, mm -hmm. the kids who weren't smart enough to, to be in school. And yet she saw the potential. She created the right environment. She understood that every child can learn. And down the line, her, quote, little idiots were outperforming their peers in many ways. Right. So often we discover that in working with children 
who uh, have handicaps or struggles in one way or another, we discover better ways of teaching things. Right. So uh, Suzuki then developed that methodology. But he, as I said in the last episode, he was not planning or hoping or even imagining that there would, you know, 50 years after he started his work, be hundreds of thousands of little children playing sophisticated violin repertoire all over the world. That wasn't his goal. His goal, much more significant, I think, was to demonstrate to the world that any child could learn anything. And he used violin and then other people, other instruments, as the method for that. But, you know, when I was there, he was still young in that he was very active. He was sharp as a tack. He taught, like I said, you know, two or more hours every day, seven days a week when, while I was in school. The only time we didn't have group lesson is when he was traveling internationally to go wow. teach, you know, somewhere else. But he would often say things like, I will have to live to be 100 because people don't yet understand. Mm -hmm. The people were looking at it and saying, wow, violinists, wow, musicians, wow, isn't that great? Whereas what he wanted them to say is, wow, children, wow, learning, wow, an approach that works for everyone, isn't that great? And they weren't seeing that. And he was trying to. He had, as I mentioned, the Suzuki method or what was called the the Sino Kyoku Talent Education and Ability Development, the preschool there, right next to the school where we were. And so I spent a good number of hours going over and observing in that preschool environment how were they trying to implement Suzuki method everything. Right. There were a few people who came while I was there that that specifically came to observe and study the preschool and then go back and attempt to start Suzuki Method uh, preschools, daycares, schools. And, and these were kind of pioneers in that way. And there were other people that were very interested to say, okay, how do we apply the principles of talent education outside of this already obviously successful method of teaching violin, cello, piano, flute, guitar, harp, I think there's oboe. <laughs> of course. So last week, we were kind of going through your own timeline. You went to Japan for three years, learned from Dr. Suzuki, as you said. You went to observe some of these preschools. When you came back to the United States, you spent a couple years at the Glendoman. Yes, yes. Actually, that was, it was very interesting how that occurred. I happened to have a perfectly bilingual friend, a Japanese kid, but had grown up in America, and she was there, very talented young lady. She did translation for Suzuki mm -hmm. and for the Suzuki organization. And so she happened to have a copy of an interview between Glenn Doman and Shinichi Suzuki. Mm. And uh, so... I was fascinated with this, and, and I read it, and it was kind of like the heavens opened for me. It was like, this is what you will do. This is the next step in your life. You will go to Philadelphia, and you will, you will work there. So completely just, 
with with no prior contact, I wrote to Glenn Doman, and I said, uh, I don't know if you need a violin teacher at your school right now, but I read about you in this interview with Dr. Suzuki. I would like to come and teach at your school, and I'll be graduating from the Suzuki School here in Japan, you know, September, whatever. Right. So, and this was before there was email or internet or web pages or anything. Are you that old? Yeah. <laughs> I had got one of Glenn Doman's books, How to Multiply Your Baby's Intelligence, and I had read that and become fascinated. So I got a letter back from Glenn's daughter, Janet, who is the director of the institutes, and she said, well, we don't necessarily need a violin teacher at the moment. We have two, and that's enough. However, we're always interested in young people who are interested in what we do. We'll have a team in Tokyo in a few months mm. seeing families in Tokyo. And if you would like to come and meet us there, you're welcome to do so. So I was only familiar with the better baby side. I was only familiar with the how to multiply your baby's intelligence, you know, the, the talent development, the accelerate the kid. I actually was not aware that the primary work of the Institutes for the Achievement of Human Potential was in teaching programs of treatment to families of brain-injured children. Mm -hmm. Everything from cerebral palsy to autism to Down syndrome to completely unable to, you know, walk, talk, see, or hear. Extreme range. And when I arrived in that hotel in Tokyo, I was just blown away. I, I had never seen that many brain-injured children in one place. Mm -hmm. My Japanese by that time was good enough that I could pick up quite a lot of what was going on. In fact, they allowed me to help a little bit just translating not the clinical stuff, but some of the basic th information things people were talking back and forth. They put me up in the hotel, and essentially by the end of that week, my whole vision of humanity in a way had been transformed. Mm. And I said, I don't care whether I teach violin or not. I've got to go there and I've got to learn this and how it fits in. Then I graduated uh, and went and I planned to arrive in Philadelphia. And it was very fortuitous, just providential for both of us that Shortly after I arrived, just a few months, their main violin teacher for their younger students had to leave because her husband got transferred. Mm. And so, boom, there was a spot for me to learn about the programs of treatment for brain-injured children, to work with the brain-injured young adults in the School for Human Development, to learn how to, you know, uh, evaluate and diagnose different brain injury and also to work in the international school with the accelerated kids that were there and teach not just violin, but some other things. I got an opportunity to work with math, uh, computer programming, which was in its infancy at that point, <laughs> yes. for at least for teaching it to little mm -hmm. kids, mm -hmm. Shakespeare, a few things that, that I was. And it was, it was an incredible three years there. And of course, the idea of Glendoman is that Essentially, any child can learn. So it was a, basically Suzuki again. Uh, essentially, only this time we're not dealing with just children who don't appear to have talent, but children who clearly are 
handicapped in huge ways. So these are the outcasts again. Yeah. So I spent three years there, and I think I would have been happy to remain there the rest of my life. I was very happy and fulfilled and working just constantly in all these different ways. But because of some family issues, it was necessary for me to leave and go to Montana and support myself. So mm-hmm. I, I went from working essentially full-time volunteer for you know housing and a toothpaste stipend <laughs> to now having to create a livelihood. Mm-hmm. So when I got to Montana, I started teaching violin students and you know building up a studio little by little. And then I, I needed more, obviously, to support my family at that time. So we had a, a Bozeman talent education. It was a Suzuki Method preschool. And my goal was to do Suzuki Method everything. So uh, we did kinder music, which is kind of a pre-instrumental type of mm-hmm. uh, movement, uh, m- music and movement curriculum. And then... The kids that were on the upper age range, five and six, they played violin. And then I developed all sorts of things I thought were revolutionary. You know, a Suzuki Method reading program, a Suzuki Method math program. I even brought in a yoga teacher and tried to coach her. This is how you would do Suzuki Method yoga with Mm -hmm. children. My mother, who lived in Montana, had actually come to visit me in Japan and stayed there for... Uh, I think she was there six weeks studying with uh, the piano curriculum. Mm. But she's a voice teacher. Actually, that's her primary degree is in Mm -hmm. in voice. And so she thought, well, why don't we have a Suzuki Method voice curriculum the way we've got piano and now cello, now guitar, now flute, right? Mm -hmm. However, there were other people that had this idea, and they started kind of an international committee But it never really worked out, and it was someone from Finland that Mm. finally convinced Suzuki to give her his blessing and let her use the trademark. And I don't believe anything ever came of that. Mm. Meanwhile, my mother had worked up this graded vocal repertoire and uh, had done some recordings and put together rounds and two-part harmony things and came up with five levels but she couldn't call it Suzuki Method because by that time, you know, the trademark and all. Uh, so she decided not to wait for the International Voice Committee, which was seemed to never, ever do anything. And so she published, uh, self-published, and called it Singing Made Easy. But that's essentially what it is. It's a Suzuki Method for vocal development. She found that she was... Uh, even more on the edge of what was accepted in the world of singing teachers Hmm. because the popular paradigm was, well, you wait until children's voice matures. Sure. You wait until, you know, with the boys it changes, with the girls it matures. And that's when you should start training a voice. Mm -hmm. And she thought, well, why? It's just like changing size of violin. Yeah, you have to get used to something. But all the fundamental things are the same. Mm -hmm. So she started teaching young children singing in a way that I don't think very many voice teachers would have even considered at the time. Uh And so she kind of tried to make that go, singing made easy. Uh, She was always too busy teaching to make it into much of a business. 
when we started printing and publishing, I tried to help get her some better prices on mm -hmm. that. Mm -hmm. And then when she uh, passed on a few years ago, she basically said to me, here, you know, do with it what you want. Mm -hmm. See if you can keep it going or don't. Mm -hmm. Whatever is fine with me. Yeah, so we actually carry the Singing Made Easy product line. There are five levels of voice instruction, as you mentioned. And when I when I look at the books, these are piano accompaniments. Well, there's there's the notes for the, there's the music and the notes for the children, mm -hmm. and then there's the piano accompaniments, and then there's also the recordings for each level. Mm -hmm. Then there's the recording of just the accompaniment for each level, mm -hmm. just like the violin stuff was. Right. And then uh, she has a coloring sheet, some coloring sheets for right. each song, so that helps lock it in. And they're very well-chosen, beautiful mm -hmm. little songs that she got and arranged. And, you know, it would be, I think, tragic to see it kind of collapse. It's just to build it into something bigger would require more work and marketing and a little refinement on the graphics and that type <laughs> yes. of thing. Yes, we carry it as your mother designed it. It's the exact same look and presentation. But we have had several people on our staff who are musically inclined look at it and practice with it and find it quite delightful. So we do sell a number of these every year. People find it somehow on our website, Singing Made Easy. So we'll, of course, put a link to that in the show notes. But this is basically voice, Suzuki voice lessons. It is. It is. We just can't call it that. No. <laughs> so, you know, along with that little preschool that I was running and my effort to kind of help fulfill Suzuki's vision, which was to prove that any child could learn anything and apply the principles of talent education. I happened to be associated with a school that sent a team of teachers to Canada uh, for a summer training, which is where I met Dr. Webster. And that was when kind of I saw this is already established a Suzuki method for English composition. Right. All the factors were in place. And Mrs. Ingham, of course, believed in the, in the young child and the power of learning at the young age. That's why she was a first-grade teacher for so many years. So the right period, the right environment, the whole blended soundside approach was plaster the walls with what you're trying to teach. Have the children memorize poetry, build the language database with Webster, put the models on the wall, get the word lists, get your synonyms and your band words list, get your prepositions, publish the work of the children, let them read each other's work, saturate them. And then with the right teacher, of course, I don't know that Mrs. Ingham realized the importance of parents per se, but I came from uh, kind of a starting to get into homeschooling orientation. Mm -hmm. And so I, it was a very easy transfer to say, well, you can teach this to other teachers in schools, but you could also teach it to parents. Right. And that would be as or more effective. And then, of course, the methodology. And we see that reflected in many ways, but there's a repertoire, mm -hmm. right? There's the nine units. You work through the nine units. You, you learn increasingly complex things in small incremental steps. And we have the mastery approach, so 
uh, with the stylistic techniques, the dress-ups, openers, decorations, etc., what's our what's our rule? Easy plus one. Easy plus one. That is exactly the way Suzuki would progress through the repertoire. He would not have a student start playing the next piece until there was mastery, mm-hmm. until the, the current piece was well done. Now, he might preview the next piece with, here's a tricky little measure here, here's the thing you're going to need to know here. You can play these little parts of this next thing. 10,000 times. Yeah, 10,000 <laughs> times. But, you know, you don't move on until what you've learned so far has mm-hmm. become easy and you maintain the repertoire. Right. Right? That maintained repertoire is the key to things becoming easy. So, for example, I used to coach my my violin students' parents and say, so if you were to spend zero minutes a day reviewing existing pieces and 30 minutes a day learning new pieces, this would be the worst possible way to learn new pieces Mm. because you would quickly forget everything you've already learned and learning everything new would be hard. Right. If you were to spend 100% of your time reviewing old pieces, well, you would have no time to learn new pieces. But if you did, it would be a whole lot easier. So where's the balance, Mm -hmm. right? Where's the balance? And that was always something I was kind of experimenting with. If if you have a a limited amount of time to practice, what percentage of it is best spent doing what you already can do and making it easier? Mm Mm-hmm. And I finally kind of settled, I think it's about a two-thirds, one-third. You know, I think if you spend two-thirds of your time playing what you know and getting better, making it easier, and one-third learning something new, hmm. that's your optimal point. Mm-hmm. I think it's better than half and half, and I know it's better than one-third, two-thirds, because with one-third, two-third, you may not be able to maintain Right. And, you know, one of the things, in fact, I just had a conversation just last weekend at a convention. A woman came up and said, well, we've done your writing program with uh, with my group of students, but, uh, you know, I adjust it. I modify it because, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I'm just worried that making them do all those techniques it just makes it sound uh, just unnatural. I mean, you know, you tell them to put in something and then you think, well, that's the first thing I would take out if I were editing this to make it better. Mm-hmm. So anyway, she wasn't mean-spirited or anything. Sure. Uh, And I did, I worked with her a little bit and said, well, the goal isn't to have everything always sound perfectly because if it was, you'd never pick up a violin at all, Mm -hmm. right? Right. If if you always wanted everything to be beautiful, you'd never learn a new thing, Right. right? If you wanted every technique to be perfect, well, you'd never learn a new technique because there's always going to be the imperfection. Right. And it's the process versus product. Exactly. The Mm -hmm. process versus product. But I I know for a fact the teachers I've met who follow the guidelines as we've established them introduce a dress-up, require it in every paragraph with very few or no exceptions, Mm -hmm. then add the next one, require both with Mm -hmm. very few or no exceptions, then add the next one, Mm -hmm. and always require everything you've taught in every paragraph. Well, what happens? Mastery. Mastery. It becomes easier and easier and easier, and then they're less likely— to do those things that sound bad, which you would want to strike out if you were editing the product so that it was good. Right, right. When you described what you just said right now and basically what you discovered in Dr. Webster's structure and style syllabus so closely mirrors what Dr. Suzuki was establishing. Suzuki everything. 
yeah. Suzuki writing. Yeah. I was making notes as you were telling your story and your both last week and this week of some of the things that we are doing here at IEW that were mirrored in your story. For one thing, you watched other teachers how they taught so you could learn to be a better teacher. Well, yeah. we do that in our Models for Imitation. imitation. Part of for, our teacher training. Yeah. yeah, for our classroom teachers, our five-day-a-week classroom teachers, they can have a product that we call Models for Imitation where they're watching you teaching a group of students so they can look at you and imitate you doing it, which is wonderful. To whatever degree they wish. Right, yeah. and you made a comment about cheating, that if they listen to the music first rather than learning it before they actually heard it, that would be cheating. I think of your talk, The Four Deadly Errors, <laughs> right. and withholding help, and we don't want to – That's we think that by helping our children too much, that's cheating. Right. You know, and we don't want to do that. Yeah. But that's actually not true. And then you mentioned when your first violin experience, when you were doing the institutes, some of the teachers taught with fidelity. Some did not. Yes. And yet that is something that we've established at IEW is our accreditation program so that when parents are looking for other teachers to teach their children writing, we've got a list on our website of teachers that we can say have gone through our teacher training and have demonstrated they know our materials. So that's the fidelity part. Let me see if there was one more thing. Well, oh, the outcast thing. You mentioned Montessori and yeah. how she was able to work with these students and they performed actually better than their peers. And it made me think of the Berwyn study that we did in Illinois yeah. where we had a group of kids in an ELL situation mainstreamed into regular classroom, learned IEW, and outperformed their peers. So, and don't forget our linguistic development through poetry memorization. Oh, exactly. That's like a Suzuki method for poetry. Right. And that's not a terribly new idea because all the Suzuki students in Japan, all of them memorized haiku poams. Mm -hmm. Over 100 mm -hmm. was part of the normal curriculum. So Right, right. Well, it's possible then to do Suzuki everything. You could either invented all yourself like you did for your preschool <laughs> or perhaps use some of these ready-made materials that we have or that you can find in Suzuki-type music programs. Is that right? Uh-huh. So, so much great things that you've learned through your history. <laughs> it's kind of fun to reminisce. Yes. Yes. We, I enjoyed reminiscing with you. Thanks so much for joining us. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, you can subscribe to this podcast in iTunes, Google Play, or Stitcher. Or just visit us each week at IEW.com slash podcasts. Until then, on behalf of Andrew Poudoua and the team at IEW, I thank you for the privilege of allowing us to partner with you on your journey toward better listening, speaking, reading, writing, and thinking. Mm -hmm.